0: So thankful for all of you who are joining us online. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 today. And I want to start out with an image. This is my dog, Grizz. We've had, do- had Grizz for about six and a half years. Uh, this is a picture of Grizz protecting his bone, all right? I mean, some of you protect some of your food, like Grizz is protect- protecting his bone. We've had him for a few years. Casey and I, the first 13 years of our marriage, we didn't have a pet. We didn't need one. The rhythm of our lives, like we just didn't feel like we could, a- we could take care of one. But then my boys started begging for a pet. Casey thought it would be a good idea. So a few years ago, we spent the money, we got us a dog. It named him Grizz because, I mean, we are, we're true Memphians now. So he represents what our city is all about. Now, uh, when we got Grizz, we told the boys, if we get a dog, you need to be responsible for it. We need your help. We need you to help clean, cl- clean up after him, which means I do everything, right? Uh, Casey does everything. I mean, Casey, Casey, cleans up the pee and the poop and the puke, and, and I clean up everything else, all right? So it's a true partnership. Now here's the deal with Grizz. Grizz is a glee peer, has been his entire life. We thought we would break him out of this. So when Grizz gets excited, Grizz dribbles, all right? This is, just, this is who Grizz is, it's how he loves people. So uh, many of you have been to our house and you have been in the preacher's home where you have been peed on, all right? But, and, and we make a joke out of it. I mean, when this happens, we're like, you know, it just runs in the family. But we do encourage people, don't wear flip-flops or sandals or slides when you come into our home. It's just part of who Grizz is. We've been able to train Grizz to do a lot of things. We haven't been able to break him from gleeping peeing on guests in our house. Here's the thing. In life, we can train pets, but we can't train people as much as we want to train people, right, to live their lives in a way that makes our lives better, it just doesn't work this way. As much as we want to train people to understand our emotions and how we tick, it just doesn't work this way. There's no such thing as a perfect relationship. There's no such thing as a perfect friend, a perfect spouse, a perfect parent, a perfect preacher, a perfect youth minister, worship ministers. There's no such thing as a perfect relationship because we are imperfect people. Now, I could do a 10-week series in which I could do something like this. The most important word for a relationship is, and I could just have like fill in the blank, and then for 10 weeks, I could preach on a certain word. So the most important word for any relationship to work in life is love. Or the most important word for any relationship to work in life is forgiveness or grace or reconciliation or beach or cheesecake. Like the most important word for any relationship to work in life is blank. In Ephesians 5, Paul chooses a word to talk about relationships. In Ephesians 5, verse 21, Paul says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Repeat after me the word submit, submit. Now say it like you really mean it and you love this word, submit. <laughs> I mean most of us, like, this is what, like we live in a culture now where we tell each other and we tell ourselves, don't submit to anybody or anything. And here's Paul in Ephesians five twenty one, who says, "Submit to everybody, out of reverence for Jesus Christ." Submit. So this Ephesians five twenty one, this is lay a foundation. Does it lay a foundation for what is to come, or is it Paul summing up what he has been saying up to this point? And when Paul uses the word submit, who is it for? And Ephesians 5.21, it sounds like it's for everybody. Submit if you're in a marriage. Submit if you're a parent. Submit in master-slave relationships. Submit to everybody out of reverence for Christ. Now let me make an argument just for a moment of how Ephesians 5.21 lays the foundation for the arguments that are to come. For what Paul is about to say. Because Paul's about to address relationships, and he does this in a few places, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4. Paul goes through household codes, and this is one of them. So in verse 22, what Paul says is, wives, and literally, in the Greek, literally it's this, wives to the husbands as to the Lord. It's an incomplete sentence. Grammatically, it doesn't make sense. If you read that, you're like, okay, something's missing. So translators came along, and in most of the the translations you're reading, it's a complete sentence in there. But for Paul, it was wives to the husbands, it's to the Lord. Which, Which lets you know that verse 22 is connected to verse 21. That when Paul lays a foundation for relationships, submit to everybody out of reverence for Jesus Christ, he's laying a foundation. So this was just a grammatical move. In verse 22, it's just connected to verse 21. You submit out of reverence for Jesus. And when Paul decides to talk about relationships, he first speaks to the wives. So in verse 22, and then through verse 24, Paul says wives to the husbands is to the Lord, and then he continues from there. Wives to the husbands, as to the Lord, if you throw up that next slide. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So a few years ago, I don't remember. Casey and I talked about this the other day. We don't remember what our argument was about. We were in some argument. It may have been like what restaurant we were going to eat, at. And I don't remember what it was, but I do remember in the moment. I, I, I said something. I was, I was like half joking, all right? but I was trying to make a point And I was like, Casey, why don't you just go read Ephesians 5.22? It says, wives, submit to your husbands. This didn't go over well, and if I'm going to quote scripture to my wife, it probably doesn't need to be the book of Ephesians, or the book of James, or a book my wife knows really well, because without missing a beat, her response was, well, if you'll keep reading that same chapter, it says that husbands are supposed to love their wives as Jesus loves the church, and you're not loving me right now like Jesus loves the church, And which I wanted my response to be like, don't quote the Bible at me in these, you know, in these moments, like, don't, don't use the Bible against me. What Paul says in 22 through 24 would not have shocked or surprised anybody. There wouldn't have been any objections. There would have been no women who would have raised their hands and have said, you're a sexist or you're oppressive. Everybody would have just known, they would have known like in their culture, this is just how things were. But the fact that Paul even addressed wives should tell you something. The fact that Paul thought that he could speak Directly to women and to wives and to children and to slaves. Just by doing that, Paul was letting everyone know there is value and there is responsibility that has been given to all human beings. So the fact that Paul would even speak to wives says something. Because in most places in that culture, you spoke to the master or you spoke to the husband and then they would instruct their family system. They would instruct their household. But Paul begins by speaking to the wives. And then in verse 25, Paul talks to the husbands. Husbands, you love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her so that she could be holy. Now, this would have been a shock to people. Because in that culture, there was nowhere where men were encouraged or men were equipped or that they were asked to love their wives. And Paul talks about husbands loving wives as Jesus loves the church which also connects to chapter 5 verse 21. You submit to everybody out of reverence for Jesus. So is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, is this about marriage? And part of that answer is yes. Paul is asking husbands and wives to live in a kind of way where they are submitting to one another, where there is mutual love and affection, and where there is an understanding that as we love each other, this is supposed to be a blessing to each other and to the entire world. Now we live in a time now where we, people in our culture, like people in our world, they love good love stories. They love love stories of how two people begin to fall in love and then there are obstacles and then at the end of the movie, they end up falling in love. Like how many Hallmark fans are in the house, right? Like, you know how the story's gonna go. Two people almost fall in love, then there are all these obstacles they have to overcome and we love stories of how people fall in love they are books, I mean people sell millions of copies. If you want to make a movie about a love story, you can get a lot of people to go see the movie. If you were to look at any list of the top 10 most romantic movies in the history of, of Hollywood, the movie Titanic would be in those top 10. Any list you look at, the movie Titanic will be in there. There are a lot of other movies I could have chose from. I'm thinking about Titanic, which kind of ages myself. This is over 20 years old, I know that. Anybody who's ever been on a cruise you have taken a picture like what you see on the screen right now somewhere on that cruise ship Now in this movie. I mean if I I believe this was the first movie to ever gross over a billion dollars I also think I remember reading research that 20% of the people who went to the theaters to see Titanic went back to see it again which rarely happens in movie theaters and The thing is is you got Jack and Rose Who knew each other for 48 hours? That's it. They knew each other for 48 hours. They are from different places in life, different social classes. They meet on this ship. I guess they fall in love. One dies, the other takes his his name. All right, that is the love story. We love stories of how people fall in love, but we need stories of how people sustain love. The stories we need in our culture and stories that need to shape what marriage is all about isn't what does it mean for people to fall in love, It's what does it mean for people to stay in love? What does it mean for people to sustain love? Now, this is true in relationship to Jesus too because Jesus is not just looking for a connection alone, but to sustain for eternity the connection that Jesus makes with people. So is Ephesians 5, 22-33 about marriage? It is. Paul speaks to husbands and wives wanting the marriage covenant to be honored and to thrive in a way where two people grow closer to God, where there is submission because there is so much love and confidence and who people are in God. It is about marriage. But if you read Ephesians 5, all the way through verse 33, you see Paul's also talking about Jesus in the church. Paul's using marriage language to talk about how Jesus has chosen to enter into covenant with people in verse 29 here's here's how Paul says it that after all no one ever hated their own body but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body for this reason and here's Paul quoting the end of Genesis chapter 2 the end of the creation narrative Jesus and Paul quote this for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. So is this about marriage? Yes. Is this about Jesus in the church? Yes. And because it's about Jesus in the church, what you read about Jesus in Matthew 5, 25 through 33, this is for everybody. Now let me paint a quick picture of the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city with over two dozen pagan temples. It was a city full of witchcraft and magic, just go read Acts chapter 18. It was a city with so much immorality, a city known for wine and keg parties and drunkenness, a city of about 250,000 people and so much evil and immorality that was there. So if you were a pagan, if you were a Gentile who came to know Jesus, there's a good chance that you have participated in some of these things throughout your life. So for anybody in that church, there was probably guilt and shame that they carried with them and probably they spent a lot of time wondering about their status with God. Now here's the thing about status. All right, some of us probably rarely think about our status. For most married people, Rarely do we have days where we wake up and we wonder am I am I married or am I not married? Am I married today? Am I not married? I, okay, I am married. For most parents, you probably don't think a lot about your status. You don't wake up wondering am I a dad, am I a mom today or not? Like you know your status. Like there are some people who rarely think about status. But for people who live paycheck to paycheck not knowing where the next bill, how it's going to be paid, they think about their status all the time. For a lot of singles, and people can be single for a lot of reasons. I bet there's almost every day, you're reminded of your status. Either you're reminded or culture reminds you for you. And for a lot of people who don't have children, you're often reminded of your status when you fill out your tax forms, individual or married, right? Kids or no kids. We're often reminded of status. So this church would have been full of people. And I would argue, That in the book of Ephesians, Paul spends more time reminding people of their status in God than any other book Paul writes. Paul uses the word saints in the letter to to the Ephesians more than any other letter Paul writes. Because he wants people to know that for everyone who was in Christ, you aren't held, held in hostage by your past. You're a saint in the presence of God. In Ephesians 5 verse 1, Paul says you are children of God. A few verses later, you are children of the light. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, you are a masterpiece. Over and over throughout Ephesians, Paul is reminding people of their identity and of their stats. This is who you are in God. So the highest calling in the life of a believer in God is not your marriage status, it's not your parenting status. The highest calling for people in the family of God is your commitment to Christ, your life with Christ, and the church is the one who speaks this over and over and over again to people. You are of value. Now, if I'm gonna tell people you are of value, I've gotta begin by saying, you need Christ. Like I just, I I can't just start from a place of you are value or you are are worthy. It starts with the place of you need Jesus. And from the foundation of Jesus, you were reminded that you were worthy and you were of value, and you were not identified by your worst mistake, you were identified by what Jesus has done for you through his death, burial, and resurrection. So Paul writes Ephesians to let these people know that your status has been forever changed by God. This is who you are, married to Jesus, living out this life with Jesus. Alright, so all of that is my argument. That Ephesians 5 verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ frames how Paul's going to talk about all relationships. We submit to one another because we are people who are so confident in who we are in God that now we're going to love each other in a way where it's not just what you can do for me, it's how can we help each other come, come to life in every way God intends. Now, here's my argument for 521 being connected to what comes before it. Now, in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, there are no commands, no imperatives. You will not find one. It's three chapters of Paul reminding people of who you are in God and who we are in God and Jews and Gentiles coming together. It's three chapters of identity. The last three chapters, chapter 4, 5, and 6, there are over 35 commands. So it's like Paul is saying, once identity is established, now we need to talk about how we live out this life. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul, and many people believe this was a baptismal chant. They believe that this is something that the church would have recited and would have declared when people were surrendering their lives to Jesus in baptism. That they would have chanted, which comes straight from Isaiah chapter 60, except the way Paul tells it is that it is Christ in this. Not just Lord, it's Christ. And it's wake up sleeper, like awaken, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's this baptismal chant, and in the baptismal chant, it's coming up out of the waters, and as you come up, you are called by God to live a new kind of life. So in chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, it's, okay, as you live your life, here's how you live. And in verse 16, making the most of every opportunity, right, making the most of every opportunity, this is literally... Redeeming the time. That's what it means, redeeming the time. This is a word that was used in the marketplace and the Agora. This was a word that was used of like snapping up every bargain that you find. So if you've ever been to a flea market and you see those bargains and you're just snapping them up. It's snapping up every bargain that you find. That's what this phrase means. Like as you live your life and you live your day, you are looking for those opportunities. You're making the most of every opportunity that is in front of you. And then, chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says this Don't get drunk on wine. Right? It leads to debauchery. Don't do that. Be filled with the Spirit of God. In Ephesus, one of the gods was God, uh, Dionysus. And Dionysus was the God of wine and drama. And in the city of Ephesus, that's exactly what it was. Like, people wanted to be on Dionysus' side. So once a year, there was a keg fest. In Ephesus, over a million people would come to the city. And what they would do for weeks is they would just get plastered. And the whole idea was, let's drink a bunch of wine. And as we get drunk, the God Dionysus is going to bless us and empower us. So we're going to get out of our mind so that this God can fill us with his mind. It sounds nuts, right? We've done crazy things in the world before. So for weeks, they would do this. So there was this influencing agent that the people in Ephesus would have been well aware of. And the influencing agent happened throughout the year where they're bowing down to the God of wine and the God God of drama. And this is, is exactly what would go on for weeks. And Paul is telling the church, hey, there's this influencing agent you've been aware of, but that's not the influencing agent you need. Don't get drunk on that. This isn't Paul making an argument for acapella or instrumental music. This is, don't get drunk on wine. But instead, there is this influencing agent from God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. So as there's a baptismal chant that brings believers to life, and there's a life you were to live where you make the most of every opportunity and that you want to be filled with the Spirit of God and that as you're filled with the Spirit of God, songs flow from your heart, there is thanksgiving and joy that flows from you, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Chapter 5, verse 21 is a connecting piece. That as we become confident in who we are in God, we submit to one another, not not that we become doormats, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because this is what it means to live a life of love. Now, let me speak to marriage real quick and then to life. There was an article written by the New York Times a few years ago, an article published in the New York Times. And it was, it was called that the happy marriage is a me marriage. And the article argued that the best marriages are those where there is satisfaction that is placed on the individual. Of how can my spouse make my life better? And that was the article. The happy marriage is the me marriage. And this is how a lot of people enter into marriage these days. It's I don't want to enter into marriage until I know I have a spouse or somebody who's gonna make my life better and they're not gonna disrupt all of my rhythms. And then a lot of people enter into marriage and try to live marriage in that kind of way. And this isn't what God ever intended. God intended for there to be a marriage covenant of two people who surrender their will to help the other person come to life in every way imaginable. And through this, it becomes a witness to the entire world of the faithfulness and the covenant of God. And it's not just the me marriage. We also live in a time. It's just the me life. Like I want relationships to help me feel better about myself. And we need relationships that strengthen and bless us. But the way relationships work as God intended is that we are submitting to one another and loving each other in a way that we're helping all of us come to life. So sometimes we can ask the question, do you love someone so much that you would die for them? And I think it's a good question to ask. And most of you probably know those people in your life that you would, you would take a bullet for them. You probably wouldn't take a bullet for everybody. You know people you would. But I think the better question It's not like, do you love someone so much you would die for them? But do you love someone so much you would live for them? Because I know a lot of spouses who would take a bullet for their spouse, but they're not making decisions to live for their spouse. And if that is you, make a change in your thinking today. And I know parents who would easily, quickly take a bullet for their children. They would die for their children, but they're not making decisions to live for their children. And if it's you, make make a shift in your thinking today. And in relationships, it's not just do we die for people, but will we allow God to fill us in a way that we want to live for people? Because the way the word love works, especially in the New Testament, is love is not about how it makes you feel. It's what you choose to do. It's action. So in Ephesus, there was another goddess, and this goddess was Artemis. And Artemis was a god of fertility, and everybody wanted to please Artemis. So throughout the year, like if you were being blessed, you would give Artemis thanks. And if things weren't going well for you, it meant that Artemis wasn't blessing you. And in March and April of every year, there was a month-long festival to Artemis. And people would come in, and much like the keg fest, I mean, they would go crazy for weeks. And at the peak of this festival, what they would do is they would go into the temple of Artemis where there were 31 statues one of them being a temple, of Ar- a, a statue of Artemis, which was about 40 feet tall. And the people would pick up these statues and they would carry them down to the harbor where they would wash them. And then they would go back to the temple where they would set the statues up. And it was their way of, at the end of three weeks of just immersing themselves in all kind of evil and immorality. Now they're going to wash the gods because they wanted the gods to be clean. And it is said that what they would do with this huge statue of Artemis is they would take Artemis down to the river, down to the harbor, in the sea. They would wash Artemis and they would say, the cleansing of Artemis through the washing of the water. And now read what Paul tells the church. And what Paul tells them in Ephesians 5, is Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And I I don't want to suggest this morning that every single person in the church carried those statues and was a part of that. But I think everyone in in Ephesus would have been aware of it. And for Paul, what he does is, hey, all of you, you know about like the thing where they carry the statues down to the water and they wash them. The life God wants you to live, it's not about how can you keep God's clean. It's of this God is chosen to keep you clean. Because of what Jesus has done, through Jesus' submission and his love, Jesus offers eternal cleansing for you. It's not how do we keep the God pure. It's that this God comes and makes us pure. No matter where you've been, no matter what you have done, status changed forever. And this is how Jesus has chosen to sustain love if you'll take the bread and the cup in your hand today. And we'll sing a song here in just a few moments. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to give us 60 to 90 seconds of silence. Just reflect on this moment with Jesus. We'll have elders available for you for prayer outside of this room to the right after this worship service. We have a prayer card on our website if there's anything we can pray for you. But right now, can we bow our heads and close our eyes and just reflect on the cleansing that Jesus has brought us? Jesus, you were the one that makes every relationship worthwhile, and you embody everything you ask us to embody in life. So through your sacrifice, your submission, your love, we give thanks in your name. Amen.